This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the Center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Do what is it that's necessary about this practice? This practice, it, it first of all settles us. It settles us so that we can see clearly, so that we're not caught up in so much of the the whirlwind that's happening all around us. And <clears throat> this particularly, this hit me particularly strongly this week with this news that came out about the state of the climate. I don't know how many people saw or uh, looked at this report about the what we're facing now. Uh, we have been for some time. This is going to fundamentally change our world very quickly. They say within the next 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to be facing serious difficulties. So it really struck me how necessary it is to remain grounded, present, and cultivate our ability to handle difficult times. This uh, was also um, this, this kind of urgency, I felt, was also... It was tempered, however, by a book I've been reading by a friend of mine named Adam Frank. He came out with a new book recently. Uh, he's an astrophysicist, and it's called uh, Light of the Stars, um, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth. It's actually quite a serious book, and I, and I really recommend it. And his hypothesis in this book, he's, he's a researcher, um, at the University of Rochester. He's a researcher, and this, his hypothesis is that, you know, just 20 years ago, we didn't even know exoplanets existed, you know, planets that are possibly habitable. Uh, when he first started in his postgraduate um, work, it, it wasn't even known. Now we know, now apparently we know, that there are tens of billions of possibly habitable planets in the universe. And he said that the, the sort of the, the thought is now that there, the chance that this is the only civilization to ever exist in the universe is something like one in 10 billion trillion. Now, unless the universe is biased in some very strange way, which it could be, that the, we're probably not the only uh, civilization to have existed or that exists currently that is facing what we're facing, which is climate change, human or the uh, climate change caused by inhabitants of a planet. Why is this important? Well, he tries, his book is trying to reframe the, this, how we view climate change. What we, you know, we, it seems that most people fall into one or two camps. 
There are, of course, the climate change deniers. Uh, I hope nobody in this room is, but if you are, please read this book. Um, most of us, though, that accept what the human effect on the on the planet um, kind of tend to view us, our own species now, as kind of like a virus. Like we're kind of like, you know screwing up the planet. We're kind of screwing up the planet. But his point is that the planet has gone through so many iterations. It has gone through so many expressions. The biosphere has gone through so many expressions of itself. Uh, he says, you know, for example, that at one point the planet was all grasslands. You know, and that was what the biosphere said, okay, this is, this is what's happening. And then that's gone away, right? And now humanity is, you know, so there's these, these expressions of the planet. And his point is that we, we, that any civilization inevitably would be, when it gets to a certain point, will change the climate of its planet. It's just a part of what species do. They just change their environment. And so to get out of this notion that somehow we're horrible people, like, you know, that we're just should be erased from the planet, which a lot of environmentalists think, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, people get, are so desperate in the, and we should be kind of, concer- we should be concerned. But to get out of this notion that somehow we're evil, I, he, he frames it like this. He says, you know, think of it like, um, like, like, te- like we're teenagers. You know, we're like we're all teenagers. This, our species. If, and, and our job is to make it to adulthood. You know, without, without killing ourselves. And I guess any parent here can empathize with that that wish yeah and that that difficulty of getting your kid to 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 make it to survive to thrive and so he th- he says that if we can get past these next 200 or so years we'll probably be okay we'll probably be okay if we can figure it out but to have some understanding that this is just the way it has to happen that it's probably happened before many times in the universe or is happening that any species would push their planet to its maximum capacity. Anyway, it's very fascinating. He runs these mathematical models about the, you know, these, uh, seeing these planets, these, uh, you know, the possibility of civilizations happen. They go, they go, they go. And sometimes the mathematical model goes, crash! And they, Everybody dies on the planet. And sometimes uh, they actually just make it. They, they just make it, you know, without without uh, killing themselves. So, you know, the jury is still out whether or not the biosphere will continue to allow us to be its current expression. Why is this important? Well, in, in terms of practice, our Zen practice, we have this ideal of the bodhisattva, this is why we put Kanon Kuan Yin on the altar this morning. Um, Kanon, or any bodhisattva, for, for people that don't know, is this ideal in Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism, of, of 
of many things, of putting others before ourselves. The Bodhisattva is an, um, a representation of the intrinsic qualities that we all have in within us. Uh, for example, the, the Bodhisattva of compassion who's on the altar is the manifestation of our own compassion. Uh, we uh, During Sushin, we put our retreats, we put the Bodhisattva of wisdom out who, for people that don't know, he wields a sword and that sword is the delusion-cutting sword, the sword that cuts in one. In other words, cuts through our dualistic thinking, good and bad, right and wrong, me versus you. Cuts through that because, why? Because that is the root cause of our suffering. When we find ourselves in pain, it's because we are in this dualistic way of approaching the world. What's in it for me? How can I get what I need versus you? So the bodhisattva is this ideal that that I think really, um, in a way, sets it in somewhat apart from other meditation traditions. It says that this practice, yeah, we practice for ourselves in one respect, but we have this greater purpose of practice, which is to practice for all beings. So I thought this 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 the exploring this idea of the bodhisattva would be pretty important to to do. I thought to to put it in modern terms, we could say the bodhisattva lifestyle, right? Because everything's a lifestyle these days. Everything's a lifestyle. So we're going to talk about the bodhisattva lifestyle. Um, so literally, bodhisattva means enlightening being. Not enlightened being, but enlightening being. To get a handle on what we mean by a bodhisattva, I thought, well, what is what? What's a real world example? And for some reason, the 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 example of Harriet Truman came to mind. Just recall Harriet Truman. Everybody here knows who she was. I believe she was. She was a, she was born as a slave in Maryland, and later she escaped to Philadelphia. But she, but when she um, she returned, she returned to Maryland, and when she did, she helped uh, somewhere near seventy slaves escape. And then eventually, uh, later, she served in the Civil War, and she. Um, actually worked as a scout and led an expedition that freed over 700 slaves. And when she, when she, um, talked about making it to Philadelphia, she said this. She said, I was a stranger in a strange land. My father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, my friends were in Maryland, but I was free. So should they. They should be free. This is a bodhisattva. Someone who puts off their own freedom, their own emancipation, until others are free. Now, some of us can hear stories like that and we can think, well, that's, I could never do something like that. That's not me. 
well, we don't have to be Harriet Tubman, but we do, the, the Bodhisattva in Buddhism reminds us that we do have the capacity to work beyond what we think we can do. And given what we're faced with, as this, as these changes begin to come, you know, we're all going to be called to go beyond what we think we can do. And so our practice, that's what our practice becomes about now. Is helping us stay present so that we can go beyond what our selfish kind of, our self-centered notions, can we go beyond what we think we can do. So just a little context. The Bodhisattva was an ideal. It was a development of Mahayana Buddhism kind of as a, um, as a kind of a pushback against early Buddhism. Um, it, it was, it, it used to be framed in this debate of Theravada versus Mahayana, right? Mahayana Buddhism was a kind of a later, uh, development of Buddhism. And, um, from what I understand, well, the, the, the early Buddhists put, put this ideal of the arhat forward, which was, you know, my job as a practitioner is to get out of suffering, like to get myself off the wheel of birth and death. Like that's my job. And I'm going to sit and I'm going to practice and I'm going to get enlightened, right? And I'm out. Think it's kind of like a spiritual version of a mic drop. You know, I just learned what a mic drop was recently. You know? So like, boom, you know, like, I'm out, man. Right? So so it's kind of like, you know, that was the arhat ideal. It's like, I'm getting myself and I'm getting off this ride. The, Ma- the Mahayana was a pushback against that. Hey, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it's all fine and good to save yourself. But what, ab- what about all, what about everybody else? Right? You don't run out of a burning building and, and say see ya, right? That's what happens. You hear about this when people get trampled, literally. I mean, you see it even like during the holidays, like, you know, Black Friday's coming up and, you know, you hear these horror stories of, you know, hundreds of people getting trampled, trampled in Walmart, you know, as they're all going for the thing, right? The Xbox Five or whatever. So, so the Mahayana is, 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 wait, let's rethink this here. Because this is how we got into this predicament, is the me first mentality. So the Mahayana was pushing back against this early emphasis on personal salvation, personal uh, enlightenment. It's not to say that that bodhisattva ideal wasn't there in early Buddhism. I want to be clear that it was. It just wasn't as... It's just a matter of emphasis. Um, the... The... the um, I want to be really clear here. Because early... When I was training, there was this kind of idea that Mahayana Buddhism, with its emphasis on giving... of taking care of others before oneself... It was sort of seen as like, oh, well, we're better than the early Buddhists. You know, we're we're kind of like superior, you know, in our approach than the Theravada 
Buddhists. Yeah. Um, this is a total misunderstanding, and we want to be really clear about that. It's it's the same with any tradition. If you have in your head that you know this this one tradition or another is better, um, you're viewing it from the outside. You really are. Our our job is not to to compare and say, well, this this is much better. You know? uh, my 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 belief is that with any true any real spiritual tradition, that it's all in there. Like that, what's that spaghetti sauce? What was that spaghetti sauce commercial from the? It was you know Prego. It's in there. You know, like it's you may not see it, but it's in there. It's in there. So if if we're if we're looking at a tradition, a religious tradition, a spiritual tradition, and we're we're we're, we're not seeing say compassion, we're not seeing. Um, Another quality. It's 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 usually because uh, we're looking at it from the outside, and uh, but it may. It, there's also the, this this notion of emphasis. So the Mahayana emphasizes the Bodhisattva ideal. Okay. So what are some qualities of the Bodhisattva? For one, this is, I'm going to frame this in a, might sound like a strange way here. It may fly, it may not, I don't know. Uh, you tell me. Um, the Bodhisattva asks this question, what is adequate? This, this path of ours is neither a path of austerity nor of indulgence. You have to remember, when the Buddha you know, started his search. He tried all these practices of asceticism, you know, torturing his body, trying to get beyond his body, his, try to get beyond his own pain and suffering through like, you know, if I can just starve it off kind of thing. Very, very punishing. So that's kind of sort of the, the one side of things. And then the other side is this indulging, this indulging. He, he, as you recall in his story, at one point he was almost on, he was on the verge of death because he was eating like, you know, I don't know, they say one sesame seed per day or something like that. I've heard it different ways. And, and he, he realized at some point, hey, this is, I'm gonna die. This is not gonna work. And so he took nourishment and he came up with the middle way. You remember this, right? The middle way. That's what Buddhism is, the middle way. So part of the Bodhisattva path is making sure our comforts are adequate, but not indulgent. If we have too little, if we have too or too much, we don't have those right conditions to practice. If we, if we lack, if we, if we have too much, we lack the motivation to practice. We have too much. Think about it for a second. If if you're if you're if ever all your desires are met, what's the what's the motivation for pre- real practice? If you have too little, you're always um, you're always looking. You're always trying to take care of the self. You're always trying to you know you're just trying to keep body and soul together, right? You're, you, you don't have you're, you're, the project is okay. How can I get enough food? How can I get enough? You know, how can I keep this job? How can I keep my family together? So you don't have the time, the energy to practice. 
So the Bodhisattva is looking for that middle way to neither indulge nor deny. <coughs> and this, but this, this is difficult because in this culture, you know, asking ourselves what is adequate is a constantly moving target, isn't it? If you think about it. Like, what is adequate? You know, it seems like this target's all only actually moving in one direction. It's only moving in one direction towards more and more. Like when we ask ourselves what's adequate, well, cell phone, is that adequate? High-speed internet access, that's adequate, right? What's necessary? Ask yourself that. It seems like we're getting to the point where more and more, we need more and more to just have what we would consider the basics. Another quality of the Bodhisattva is perseverance. What we want to remember is that when the Buddha sat down under the bow tree, after taking that nourishment, he he said, he said to himself, I'm not going to move until I reach enlightenment. I'm just not doing it. I'm not moving. I'm, I'm done. I can't, I can't keep going. I can't keep moving around trying different things. I've got to just sit here until I figure this out. So this bodhisattva path is something we have to come to over and over again. We come to it uh, time and time again. We, we get on the path, we, tr- we practice, and then we get distracted. And so we come back. We practice, you know, we, we practice compassion, we practice giving, we practice equanimity, presence, and we screw up. And so we come back again. <clears throat> that old Japanese phrase, seven times down, eight times up, is our model in our life. We're, we screw up constantly. So okay. We just brush it off. Okay, now, back again. Try again. We don't beat ourselves up. Oh, I'm horrible. This sucks. I can't do this. You know, like the, with the world situation, we don't blame. Oh, you're you're to fault. Oh, I'm at fault. No, no. We just do the work. We persevere together. Each time we do something selfish. Each time we do, you know, we say something unskillfully. Each time we accidentally, you know. Uh, buy something that we don't need or throw accidentally throw away something that needs to be recycled. Okay, we make mistakes. We notice it. That's our practice, to notice it and to, to acknowledge it and to come back. Okay, time time to try again. There was this uh, sign that somebody told me up, about up in Canada, up in this wilderness area, and it uh, it, it said... It, it was like at the intersection of two roads. So you're driving down this road, and you're going to turn onto this other road. And and before you turn on this other road, it says um, it says warning, unserviced road. Pick your groove carefully. This is the spiritual path. It's an unserviced road. You just have to practice. You have to pick your groove. And you have to get over and over again. You have to re-get, you have to get back into the groove. It's difficult to navigate. 
the, the, another quality of the bodhisattva is that of compassion. We've been talking about that. We talk a lot about that in Zen and Buddhism. Two wings of a bird we often talk about. If, if you're just, if you're just kind of skillful and wise with, uh, without compassion, you're in balance. In other words, a bird with just one wing is in balance. It's not going to be able to fly. So you need that balance between being skillful and wise and discerning, but also heartfelt. Otherwise, it's dry. But I was thinking about this word compassion, and and it's kind of one of these lofty words that really turns people off in a way. What does it mean to be compassionate, right? God, I'm not compassionate. So I thought we could substitute, instead, I thought we could substitute a different word. I thought we could start using the word sensitivity instead. Sensitivity to others. Having our radar up, picking up the signals of what has to happen, what, how can I help, rather than, you know, oh, I have to be compassionate. Or perhaps we don't even have the capacity to help. Perhaps we, we, for whatever reason, we can't help. But at least, can we spend some time in another person's shoes? You know, you know, when somebody's mean to us, when somebody says something uh, unskillful, when somebody does something that's clearly selfish, you know, can we can we stop at that point? Can we say, okay, that that person is on some level suffering; they're in pain. Can we do that rather than the immediate reactivity, right? We ha- we have this repentance ceremony that we we haven't done really here, but uh, in our tradition we have this thing called a repentance ceremony that sort of clears the air for us every once in a while. And as a part of that ceremony, we have this vow or this um, verse that we recite: "May we always be aware that everybody we practice with is a Dharma sister or brother striving for self-realization." Even the polluters, even the oil companies, can we remember that on some level, even though it's hard to understand, that on some level we all are trying. You can disagree with that if you'd like. So, why is this um, ideal of the bodhisattva so important? Because we recognize that a good deal of the suffering that is in the world is because of this self-preoccupation, this preoccupation of the me. What's in it for me? Um, have you seen that cartoon? Uh, it's an old, I think it was a New Yorker cartoon, and it's a couple, and they're sitting at a table. It's like a date, right? And the man is like six frames, right? And the the first frame is like the man's going, and above the bubble above the man's head is like me 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 me, and then and the next bubble is me 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 me, and the next bubble is me 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 me, right? And then finally the next the or it goes on. The next bubble is the woman going I, and then the final the the final panel is. The man going, ugh, yawning, right? 
that self-preoccupation. That's what the Bodhisattva is trying to get us to see past. So we recognize that need to step beyond ourself, putting others before us. Going back to this, this, um, this, I don't know what you would call it, this new, um, this new age that we're entering uh, with, with this climate change. There's a teacher, David Loy. He's an environmentalist activist and, and Zen teacher. And he argues that, um, that what we're facing is an unprecedented scale of the three poisons being institutionalized. The three poisons for people that don't know in Buddhism are greed, hatred, and delusion. And that these have become institutionalized across the planet. In our government, in our governments, in our corporations. And the job of a practitioner is to head into that, to face that head on. He, he puts it this way. He says, um, how we should respond is like uh, a quote that he came across from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, believe it or not. He said, the, this quote goes, the difficult we do immediately, the impossible will take a little longer. I love that. The difficult we do immediately, the impossible will take a little longer. This is the Bodhisattva vow, to save all beings. How can you do that? How do you save all beings? It's impossible. Well, you just do it. You just keep working. Keep working. You keep working locally, politically, in your own personal life. He goes on, he says, the Bodhisattva takes a vow to help liberate all living beings. Someone who has volunteered for such an unachievable task is not going to be intimidated by present crises, no matter how hopeless they may appear. That is because the Bodhisattva practices on both levels, inner and outer, which enables one to engage in in goal-directed behavior without attachment to results. So this is the key, to work without the goal, uh, to get getting dissuaded when our, we don't reach our goals. That's the key. The bodhisattva doesn't go, oh, shit, you know, didn't get it, so I give up. He says, as T.S. Eliot puts it, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. So the Bodhisattva's job is to do the best it can without attaching to the consequences, without without knowing the consequences, without attaching to the results. And then just to, uh, to end with, he said, the equanimity of the Bodhisattva activist comes from non-attachment to the fruits of one's action, which is not detachment from the state of the world or the fate of the earth. What is the source of this non-attachment? 
that question points to the fruits of the Bodhisattva's inner work. So I I just want to invite all of you to to notice your own capacities, to, to, to tap back into those, and to notice that in others, to notice that the Bodhisattva is is the fireman, the, the fire person putting out the fire, the 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 crossing guard who's who's looking after the kids, the uh, the teachers that day in and day out do the work. <laughs>